it's like everybody draws this box around themselves at a certain point in their 20s or 30s. And anything that's in that box, they still deal with. And anything that's outside of that box, they don't. And I think that, um, I think that's how you get old. <laughs> yeah, get out of the box. Yeah, Just yeah, get definitely. out of the box. Just be open. I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Gray Matters Podcast. Along with my co-host, Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Gray Matters Podcast. Our guest today is Teresa Laughlin, born into a film family in L.A. By 18, she'd already appeared in five feature films, mainly with her dad, Tom Laughlin, of the famed action film series, Billy Jack. After a vigorous touring schedule, she left the business and attended college, followed by art school at Parsons School of Design in New York City. She opened a private business, creating garments for high-profile clientele. Shortly after that, she introduced her own collection of high-end evening wear. The business grew fast, catching the attention of investors, and David Letterman became a business partner. Her extraordinary aptitude for fashion business resulted in huge demands by clients requesting her services, so she decided to open her own PR firm. Quite a journey, and it doesn't end there. Without further ado, meet the very versatile and very talented Teresa Laughlin. Hi, Teresa. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Okay, before we start and we dive in, uh, you might hear a voice chime in from time to time. A fashion bug in his own right, a musician <laughs> and professional voiceover. My co-host, Tony Hoyland. Tony, say hello to Teresa. I think you guys know hey, each other. Hey, Teresa. How hey, are you? Hey, Tony. I'm good. Okay. Fashion bug? I think fashion victim might be I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the term. Like, I, I, I wasn't I, totally sure fashion how to casualty. take that, but... <laughs> you know what? It's kind bug. of a thing I do every opening. I kind of tease Tony in some fashion, no pun intended, okay. based on who we're talking to. And I guess the okay. bug came out, so there you go. Right. So, uh, Trish and I actually, we spoke a bit, and as she knows, the, the show is about uh, the gray matters, about passion of people's lives and their journey. And we determined Teresa has, her passion is learning. Um, you know, it's funny, and I, we talked about that before, and then I went and looked up something that I thought it'd be relevant to say first about learning. And I, wrote, I read, if you find learning exciting, you'll develop a passion for it. But for learning to be exciting, it needs to be something you find enjoyable. Make the process of learning enjoyable and think of that process as important and meaningful in, in and of itself. Take us back a little bit because I think it all started with your acting and the fact that you were in your dad's movie and I think you had a song. I don't want to speak for you. What happened early on and when did that start the acting? We'll start with that. The the acting was, was definitely... Um, unintentional. Uh, I was uh, 10, I think, in the first movie. And it was a small film, certainly from my perspective, that we fit the filming into a public school strike that was happening in LA, so I didn't have to miss any school. And, um, and I was sort of this ubiquitous, unexplained child that was always... <laughs> <laughs> in frame um and and it was fun like my mom and i made sandwiches for the cast and crew out of the back of the station wagon and it was very low budget my babysitter was in it and um 
And I, I, at that age, it was just sort of, you know, something my parents were doing and, and they inserted me into it. And, and, uh, you know, as a dutiful child back then, I, I said, okay. Um, and then it just took on a life of its own. And the, the film became, I think, something that certainly many people didn't expect other than perhaps my father. Um, and then the, then the wheel was already turning and it was a little hard for me to get off of it. And did you, you just kept doing movies with him and were like, this is nonstop, it sounded like a vigorous schedule. Did you go to school or have a tutor or how did you continue the acting and do school? So the subsequent films, I was, I think, 15 in the second one and 17 in the third one. Um, and for those, yes, we had a, a tutor on set. And so you would go and spend your time in the trailer with the tutor and kind of do what you needed to do. Interestingly enough, <laughs> it's not uh -huh. interesting really at all, but I'm going to throw it out there. I actually almost didn't graduate from high school because filming had taken me out of um, ceramics class <gasps> and class participation was, was part of the, part of the grade. And so my parents had to kind of go in and go, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> but, um, but other than that, yes, we had tutors. Wait a minute. Ceramics almost kept you out of graduating from high school. Who would have thought the, the, yeah, the ceramics know, right? class was a requirement? I know. And your dad didn't threaten to kind of kick their butt because never. You know, Billy Jack. Okay. No, that, <laughs> that would never uh, ever. Um, be a and, and so, and, and so did you feel the, the, the bug stick with you or was it because your no. dad was in the business? No, you just did these no. roles. You weren't like passionate about it. I would have ditched it. Much. I would have ditched it long before, um, huh. given the option. Um, the, the actual, you know, the actual act of acting, I find very enjoyable. I find it really interesting to kind of, you know, delve into a character, not that not that I was particularly a character in any of these, but um, I find that part sort of um, interesting and fascinating, but, but all the rest of it was just not a, a lifestyle that was helpful or healthy for me. So I didn't really have enough nerve to kind of say that out loud. Um, so I, I ran away to New York sort of on the auspices that I was going to, you know, get some theater under my belt. Um, and then, and then just promptly didn't. And that made the break for oh, me. Oh, so you said I've had enough of LA, the movies, I'm going to go do acting on stage. And, and you just that was just sort of how I, how I escaped how I escaped. That was a non-confrontational way of, 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 uh, uh, getting, of out of getting out of Dodge. Yeah. Well, you obviously had musical talent because you're you're writing and singing the song. You're in the movie singing the song and playing the guitar. So you enjoyed Thank that Thank you part so much for bringing that up. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I had always, you know, I had, I've always written, um, even as a kid. And, and I had been, my parents gave me a guitar and I, for Christmas, and I went upstairs and, you know, plucking two strings with my right hand, um, wrote a song and uh, ended up, you know, writing lots of songs just as a, as a 
private form of expression. So yes, my father being my father shoved some of them in, um, and and I'll leave the judgment of that decision to no, other people. I saw it was but, very emotional. Um, uh, some of the songs, Johnny, and all yeah. that one, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You got you got the, so the music probably sounds like the music part of the acting you were in, intrigued by more and writing, and then you said okay, so acting in films, like you said, the act the part of acting was interesting, but like many actors, it's just hanging around the sets and all that gets a little old. Is that maybe kind of one of the reasons you wanted that live feeling? You want to go try out theater, as you say, your escape or your to New York? Because that's how you got out there. I really found um, I'm a very shy person by nature, um, even though I can sort of, you know, play extroverted um, when necessary. And I can kind of maintain that for a period of time, but um, but not sustainably like I need to I need to vanish and retreat and recharge. So for me, there were too many eyeballs on us. And and I'm grateful that our family's two minutes of fame happened pre social media and pre cell phones, Mm. because it was um, it was incredibly destructive. Even then, when when you were able to step away from it to a degree, everyone project stuff onto you and you sort of find yourself um, altering your existence to sort of fit into that in a way that certainly for me was not not healthy. So the Hollywood life, you know, with your dad, because at the time people, was it that's one of the things that annoyed you was moving around town and they all knew who he was and you didn't like that scene because you're a bit shy or was it like that? Are you talking about just the Well, you couldn't really do you couldn't really do any, you know, when they had their, their moment, it was, it was sort of white hot. And so we couldn't yeah. really go anywhere without sort of stopping every 30 seconds to chat with someone and, yeah. and take a picture. And as a kid who's, you know, just trying to get to your friend's house um, <laughs> to go to the movies or whatever, yeah. it was, you know, it was kind of like, Oh my gosh. Um, but, but that was, you know, that was, what it was but for me personally i found um uh you know particularly with the second movie because i think for the first one i was a little um just unaware of what was happening but with the second one i was sort of at this age where you know i was in tiger beat magazine at heartthrob of the month or whatever it was and i think i had that issue and (laughs) and my parents my parents which you know is a is a is a question that will uh, remain unanswered would give me my fan mail and so as a you know 15 year old 16 year old 17 year old i would kind of look through this stuff and I had this um, overwhelming realization that 90% of these people were projecting stuff onto me that didn't belong and they would be so disappointed if they ever met wow. me. And, and so for me, I felt like I retreated into this fairly blank state for a, a number of years so that I could quickly guise what it was, you know, someone wanted from me in any given moment and and do my best to to perform that duty. Um, and I think it was, you know, just not a good situation. 
I wonder if they, your parents actually took the time to think about giving you that mail because that, that stood out when you said that. I don't that. think so. They just said here? <laughs> I don't think they could have. Need it? Yeah. Like, 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 and it's, it's wondering the effect on a young girl that would have on me. It's like, who is this person writing me? I mean, it's like getting fan mail at that age and you're not even prepared and not even wanting it. It sounds like that fan mail. You're just kind of doing what they told you to do, being the movies. Yeah, totally. And it, and it was also, you know, there was this sense of presumption that I that I found, you know, kind of shocking in terms of people are going like, oh, you're so this and you're so that and you're so this and you're so that. And it's kind of like, no, I'm not. Where <laughs> are you getting that from? <laughs> like, it was like, you know, um, and then much later as I as I, you know, kind of um, dove uh, fairly deeply into Jungian psychology and, and sort of really started to understand the power of projection in daily life and in sort of every relationship we have ever. Um, it all kind of became clear and I started to pull myself um, back into the back into the picture. Now, before we leave that part of your life, I mean, how did, you know, because you're somewhat an unwilling participant, how do your friends, how were your friends, like, were you that famous kid in school or when you went to school, even though you sounded like you had tutors, but when you were in school, did you, uh, how did it go for you when you're there? Was it like, oh, just no one really talked to you normally or you're, oh, that's Billy Jack's daughter, you know? You know, the, the, sh the shooting schedule was, was pretty tight, so I didn't really miss all that much school. Um, mm. So I was in, you know, I was in public school in Pacific Palisades, California. And okay. um, uh, this, again, the second film, the, when the second film hit was just as I was entering high school. And which is, you know, already a fairly fraught moment in time. And I remember the friends that I had were kind of calling me and telling me about these rumors that were going around high school because a lot of people had gone to summer school and people were saying how I, you know, was so kind of full of myself and like, like to introduce myself as saying I was Billy Jack's daughter <laughs> and like all of these oh things that God. were, were Rumors. so abhorrent yeah, yeah. and like, you know, oh. and I remember, oh. I remember entering school, like it wasn't stressful enough and kind of walking around going like, Oh my God, I hate every minute yeah, of this. And, oh. and as I was coming down the stairs, I'll never forget this. And, and it was just this press of people going two ways. And this guy who was the captain of the football team, I don't know his name grabbed me by the arm. He was going up, I was going down. He grabbed me by the arm. And I looked at him like, what's happening? And of course we blocked traffic going both ways. And and he said to me, he's like, if only you had blue eyes. And then he kept oh. walking. And I, and it was like, <laughs> what? yeah, this was California. So it's like, wow. Um, and I remember it was sort of this interesting moment because I was so humiliated in front of everybody. Um, and yet it had nothing to do with anything other than this guy was a jerk. And right. so that sort of, okay, that's done with, and now I can move on. But I think, I think my life experience or sort of what, you know, what I was going through in terms of whatever small level of, of fame we had, um, and my inherent shyness, I think a lot of people made assumptions about me that weren't accurate which sort of pushed me further into the into the shy mm, hole yeah, yeah. and so i had a cluster of 
you know, I had a cluster of friends and played on the volleyball team and, um, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely got a little more reclusive as, as, um, high school went on for sure. Teresa, I'm curious, um, do you still play? Do you still play your guitar? From time to time. It's like, it's uh-huh. one of those things where you, when you lose the calluses on the tip of your hand, oh, yeah. like it's, you know, then it's hurts like hell. Yeah. Um, but my daughter, uh, Lily decided she wanted to play a couple years ago. So we pulled it out and, and kind of, you know, it was like, oh, okay. I, I still remember this. Um, but not the way that I, not the way that I did certainly. Mm-hmm. Well, before I go on that scene from the, uh, the with the quarterback, it feels like it's right out of a movie in itself, like a teen movie, like stopping in the hallway, the big quarterback talking It was pretty to bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like, it's so funny how this stuff gets carved. I was sharing, uh, you know, I was talking to my brother, he had a, a similar moment that's just like frozen in crystal clear amber, if that's a thing, um, where, you know, someone had said something offhanded to him and and I had my moment and I think everyone has their moment. And it just reminds you how critically important it is to just be kind <laughs> because yeah. you may okay. say something that's so off offhand, like doesn't mean anything to you. You think it's nothing. And yet, you know. Here we are all these years later carrying these carrying these memories around in a visceral so way. True. All right, so we're we're gonna jump because it's about you or now you're in New York Please. now. So you're you're yes. going to you're going to find your way to the stage and you you, you don't find your way? You think think you're gonna find your way or young <laughs> studies? What happened? It was a ruse. <laughs> it was a ruse. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I made funny. no effort to find my way. All right, then you discovered you discovered fashion in, in that world and decided to go in that direction. Suddenly you shifted. I think there's a foundational um, system in which I was raised that maybe makes me slightly more inclined to to drift. And um, and I think it it goes back to that belief in oh, you know, you've attained the Holy Grail, you are a working actress, and and here you go. I didn't have um, either the luxury or agony, depending on how you look at it, of sitting down and really kind of looking at the world and thinking what I might be good at or what might interest me or what direction um, my life should take. My dad, who is uh, remains uh, even after his passing, sort of one of the most brilliant people I've met, um, did not believe in in education, <laughs> which is sort Whoa, of ironic okay. since he ran a Montessori school. But uh, he didn't believe in college. Let's put it that way, and um, and so in our family, the idea of going to college is not not something that was on the table. Hmm. Um, He felt that all, you know, free and independent thinkers were self-taught. I know where he's coming from with that, but I don't, you know, I'm not totally down with the whole, whole principle. So for, for me, my brother didn't go to college. My older brother didn't go to college and, um, and it was not expected that I would go to college. And I remember applying on the sly and, sending you know all the letters to my best friend's house and i had gotten accepted to some schools back east and 
was trying at the dinner table every night to work up the horrific news that um that I horrific. planned to go to college. <laughs> and, yeah. and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I I wow. couldn't do it. So I moved out. I was 17 and um I moved out and I was in this, you know, tiny, tiny little house in the Palisades. And it was just kind of like, what am I doing? Like, what does my life look like? Um, and I ended up sort of having this spontaneous moment where I found UCSD was on the quarter system. And so even though I'd missed the first quarter, I could go. And and I applied and I moved and, and it just sort of happened, you know, too quickly for anyone to stop me. And I went down there and I, I liked um, I liked the college and I liked my classes. But again, I wasn't I was taking classes that interested me. I was still not at the point where it was like, what am I going to do with my life? And so so maybe part of, you know, my myriad path to wherever I find myself at, at any given moment <laughs> is is because I'm sort of exploring that very late in life, as opposed to when I was a kid, as as most people do. Um, so so yes, I drifted around quite a lot. I was in New York. I had uh, put some money down on an apartment. I sold my house uh, in Malibu. Had some money in the bank and thought I was thought I was. Um, pretty golden and had some time to kind of think and figure out what was next. And my parents' house burned down uh, in the Malibu fires. It was on TV. We saw it. And they pretty much got out with, you know, one car and the clothes on their back. And Mm. so, um, so my bank account went away and I found myself uh, with a mortgage and no job and no real, you know, path towards one. So I just started doing whatever I could do. So I was, you know, like everyone in New York, waiting tables and tending bar and, and someone mentioned cue cards. So I went and did cue cards for Saturday Night Live and David Letterman. Um, and, uh, and while I was there, I decided to take some classes, um, in fashion because I had always, sewed or knitted or you know anything along those lines and i and i'm a little bit you know i I don't know if you or anyone in your life has sewed but they use they make these tissue paper patterns (laughs) that are like you know there's seventy five thousand sheets of them and and you have to cut them out meticulously and and it was just Mm. not what i was interested in doing i just wanted to know how to throw fabric up on a form and and make something (laughs) so um so that's that's what I did. And I started taking one class, then another, then another. And then I started crawling into bed with pattern making books. And, um, and you know, my husband was just like, when are you going to kind of notice what everyone else is noticing here? So, um, so I was an intern. I was the world's oldest intern at uh, a designer by the name of Anna Sui. And it was, I was largely, you know, getting coffee for, people who were significantly younger than I was, but, um, but like any experience, there's always something to be learned. And so I kind of kept my eyes open and I, you know, kept a little notebook and I, um, just sort of sucked up whatever I could suck up in that 
in that situation. And, um, and then I was about to take a job at, um, at uh, another big firm. Uh, the guy that was interviewing me talked me out of it. And so I just, I decided to just open up a little shop and do made to measure clothes for people. So it began, I, I did men's clothes initially, and then I did uh, women's clothes and then, you know, hired a couple people and, and then it just sort of took on a life of its own. Well, it's a very competitive field. And like when I read your bio, I mean, literally we talk about learning, it just, it honestly flows well, even though you've done, you've done shifted a bit, obviously, but I would think you, to get into that business and to go quickly be able to get those clients, you obviously know from maybe from your father, how to hustle to get the get attention and you became a natural at PR because that's not an easy business to get going in and then to hire people. So what were your tactics? I mean, were you kind of because you went to the school of life learning versus college, more said, is that really kind of prepared you for that kind of energy to pursue it? I think that there is, and I am I am not in any way ever gonna sort of dissuade people from getting educated because I think it's um, a, a remarkable thing to do, and a, especially you know at an age appropriate time of your life to sort of explore all sorts of lovely things. So so don't take anything I say as any kind of um, like you don't need school, but I I think that in everything that I've done, I think because I was not um, technically trained in those fields, I was not really bound by, you know, well accepted or considered limitations. And so mm. for me, I just, it, it, and, and I was actually just talking to an editor about this um, yesterday, because it was like, I can't decide if it's a, a strength or a weakness, but I kind of I walk into a room and I, I sort of think like, how hard can this be really? Like, especially <laughs> in this age of, you know, YouTube videos and uh, I mean, what can you learn, you learn to yeah, do? Exactly. And exactly. it's, you know, I actually finally, finally, finally pulled out my old Encyclopedia Britannica's, which I purchased when I moved out because it, to me signified that I was now officially an adult. Um, <laughs> and and I pulled out an old Encyclopedia Britannica and I showed it to my son and I was like, this is how I used to have to do it. Yeah, I, was like, yeah. I was like, oh my God, like this was the information you had and that was it. So, so for me, I, I just find the wealth of what's available just in terms of information and opinion and all of that stuff online um absolutely incredible so i think that going into fashion um i i sort of took a tack that was not really prevalent at the moment which was oddly since i went into pr that i i was not particularly interested in the editorial aspect of it i was interested in creating clothes for women. They were high-end um, evening wear for the most part. So most people were going to buy these things for events. And and I wanted, um, I wanted to make women feel amazing uh, um, 
in those events and provide them options that that would do that. So like, you know, my ball gown skirts had pockets or like, you know, I would I had this bulletin board up on the wall and I had like six or seven women in mind always when I sat down to design with different ages and different body types and different. And so there was a there was a practicality to um to high-end fashion that I think is often ignored largely because, you know, it's primarily designed by men. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. I, I can't tell you why I succeeded. It wasn't, I didn't go chasing after it avidly. I really just started doing, I love the work. Um, I wasn't chasing a result. And so for me, to make um, a tailored suit for uh, you know a man, which is how I started, and it was all primarily hand sewn, and you know the hours and hours and hours that went into it. The process to me was um, was lovely and and a reward in and of itself. And so I wasn't using it as a, a you know my eye was on that and not on mm -hmm. on the next step. And so um, so it just sort of all happened. And I think that there's, I think that when your full heart is in something, um, I think good things come out of it that you can't necessarily take claim to. Mm -hmm. Well, you said something about, well, first of all, pockets. I love, I always miss pockets where I want some pockets. I like that you thought that way. <laughs> not, that I'm, not that I'm wearing a lot of evening wear for women, but um, uh, I always like, God, I wish I had a pocket right there. Um, yeah. uh, but I, I think what you said something a moment ago that really resonated with me when you go into a room and it's kind of how I felt when I was in advertising. Everyone made a big deal of it. And I wish it, how hard could this be? It's a box of jello. Okay. I mean, right. you can really figure out how to advertise it. And so uh, I never, my the issue is, is like not issue. I didn't take it too serious, so I didn't find that the the drama and the stress of it all in advertising. Because I said we could do this. It's just another. It's like we're we're coming up with a few taglines and we're selling sugar. That's it, you know. And so right. you said, hey, I, I come in there, I can come up with some ideas for this. I can easily. I mean, just listen. It can't. Be, you don't need to go yeah, to school just, to figure it out. It's, a lot of it's common sense. And I go back to my favorite line: like, why don't, How do we simplify this? Why do we make it so complicated? You know. Right. Right. And I think a lot of I think, you know, people in general um, tend to hang their value on any given moment. And I think I think work certainly plays a big role in that, which I think is why, sure. you know, a lot of people really struggle when they retire because it's like, oh, mm -hmm. my God, now I'm not there anymore. <laughs> um, but I feel like um, if you can kind of anchor any journey you're on, um, not in the result, right. then I just think it's a much more successful way to move through life. Right, right. Um, I, I remember reading this book when I was, gosh, in my 20s. I don't even know how I stumbled upon it. And I won't try to say his name because I won't be able to. But um, the book was uh, called Flow. And it was, and I, I actually keep thinking I should go back and reread it to see if it, it sort of resonates the same way because it just knocked me on my ass at the time. And it was about this, this guy who had studied all of these people from all these various walks of life 
um, whether it was a factory worker or a white collar worker or like whatever it was they were doing was sort of beside the point. Mm-hmm. And they were trying, he was studying people that had um, high levels of satisfaction in their work and and was able to drill down to, uh, you know, a set of components that needed to be present for people to be really satisfied, regardless of what it was they were doing. And I remember at the time, um, I was, you know, this was my cue card, waiting tables, tending bar stage. And I had gotten to the point tending bar where um, I I was long past um, the time when I should have been there because I was just starting to resent anyone that walked through the door. Like it was just (laughs) like, I mean, it was was fine. Like it was fine, but it was like, oh my God, I'm trapped behind this thing and you're going to talk to me it had long past um lost its appeal other than you know the stack of cash at the end of the night yeah, but yeah. i so i was really fed up with it um and and kind of miserable uh and i read this book and i i thought okay let me try and implement some of these things like let me try and figure out you know, what I can do to make this better. I mean, the, the situation itself isn't going to change, but what can I do to feel better within it? And I would give myself little challenges, like at the end of the night, I would, you know, restock, you know, I try to beat my record from the previous night, or I would try to, <laughs> you know, sell X more drinks during the whatever, whatever, just stupid little things. But transformative in terms of my level of satisfaction with what I was doing. And so to me, I realized that, you know, the facts of any given situation are what they are. And in many ways, I don't even know if they're good or bad. Like, I I think that depends on your perspective. Um, But what you do about that and how you think about that and how you react to that is is something you can control and so therefore you know do what you can in that moment to make it as satisfying as possible hmm. i had the exact same experience as a bartender it was, i was thinking um, you must have yeah. well no no you, you know th- you think it's kind of fun and sexy and you're kind of on stage and that's true for a while but you're so right especially like if it's slow and like the regulars come in and you're you're it's you yeah. and the regulars Oh my God, yeah. it's so painful because they, they want you to be their, your, their therapist, yeah. their friend. Exactly. And it's like, oh my yeah. God, dude, please go get a life. I just want to make yeah. some money. <laughs> exactly. You're trapped. You're trapped behind the bar. You're, you're totally yeah. trapped. You're, you you're, you're, you're trapped. Totally, you can't go anywhere. Yeah. It's horrendous. Yeah. Well, it's, as, we, as we move through your life, I love your journey and you're stepping out of your comfort zone. But when did, because I hear and read about the sailing, when did, in all this amazing accomplishments, when did sailing enter? Early on, or you discovered it and became natural to you? You know, it was, so I was working in the city, and um, and I found certainly then, I don't know if it's um, the same way now, but then there was a real clear line drawn in the sand between moms who worked and moms who didn't in a in a way that was super judgy and unhelpful to everyone um 
I just wasn't really meeting anyone. And so we lived here and I liked the community and, and, you know, the commute was easy breezy and that was all great. My kids were happy, but I, I didn't really know people here. And so however many years into that, um, uh, we had joined Horseshoe Harbor, which is a little, a little club down in, down in the park in Larchmont. And because my husband is an avid kayaker and I noticed that they had, um, a learn to sail, like a, whatever it was, like a six week learn to sail program on whatever, Wednesday night. And so I signed up really a hundred percent as a way to try and meet people like the sailing was was ancillary to my to my main <laughs> goal and um so we we get there and you know we all get on the boat and the the man who taught us this lovely 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 man named bill i don't know his last name we took turns my hand hit the tiller I didn't care if everyone fell overboard. Um, I, I was, I, you know, the angels started singing and, and that was that. So mm-hmm. I completed the course and he approved me. The club had, um, I don't know what they had. They had like three Capri 22 foot boats or whatever. And I was approved to take those out. And so our weekends then became, um, we would get on the boat with my daughter and um, my husband would cast us off and he and my daughter would go down below and fall asleep and and I would sail around Long Island Sound. Um, and it, it became just this really transformative experience for me. So I, I bought a boat, of course, and um, began racing it immediately and um and sort of never really looked back well because you're now i think you teach you've taught it right i mean you're very involved yeah. so that was quite a yeah, yeah. quite a journey so for something to be again back to your your interest and passion for learning i mean that's pretty quick quick learner then become a teacher and a racer so that's pretty impressive i mean my experience with ra- with sailing is uh First of all, my frustration is why does everything have to be named something different? Why, why can't you can't do the left and the right? And like a guy, I, I was taught, and a guy who started yelling at me, Todd, they? I go, just call it the left rope. Why can't you say the left rope? And going, yeah, and every skipper yeah. has their own verbiage too, so that gets yeah, even yeah. more problematic. But um, no, I have to say, again, I go back to just not doing it the way it's usually done, right? So, so I, you know, didn't grow up junior sailing i didn't i didn't know anything and so i was trying to pack all this information in um much later in life and and as soon as i raced the first time i was just like this is the best thing ever invented and so i was doing this very foolish thing of trying to learn to race and learn to sail at the same time, um, uh, yeah. which you know, I'm not sure I would recommend to everyone, but but it was certainly um, an expedited learning curve because because you're in close proximity to other boats and um, you know you're trying not to hit them, so that yeah. helps you learn to turn damage. the boat quickly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had I had good instincts for it, and um, and it it just is still 
you know, I mean, I, I frostbite in, in the winter. I'm, I'm not, I'm not willing to have an off season. But you mentioned something, uh, the Jungian influence. I mean, I love yes. to hear what well, that's, wow. That I made a little note of that. So has that guided you quite often? Do you study him still? And what's the impact he's had on you? Oh my God. It's, um, I would say it's probably, probably the closest thing I, I have to my religion for sure. Mm, um, my dad was a, was a Jungian. Um, he used to, he used to read, oh my gosh. He used to read to us from the collected works. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the volume of collected works, but it's, you know, (laughs) countless volumes of these black books and, and it's, it's heavy lifting. Like, it's not like you don't read it and go like, oh yeah, I totally get what that's about. Um, and wait, for instead of a children's that, wait, instead of a children's book, he reads you Jungian at night. He would uh. read us every Sunday. <laughs> he would read us from the collected works, and um, and it meant nothing to us, like uh. nothing. We had no idea what he might as well have been reading in Latin, like it meant nothing. Oh my God. And so, like all you know, young people, I sort of pushed far away from it, and it was like, okay, that's his thing. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> And then I was I was photographing um, a conference because I was working as a photographer and I was photographing a conference and it was a very cool conference where um, people would come from, you know, the top of the science field and the top of the, you know, psychology field and the top of, you know, top scientists and whatever. And they would all get together over the course of a few days and discuss you know, all sorts of different topics from these, from their various vantage points. And it was a cool thing. And I remember at the welcoming um, party, the cocktail party, I was taking pictures and this, this woman came up to me and was chatting and somehow um, I'm sure she was asking questions that sort of led us here, but somehow I mentioned to her that I had had this recurring dream and um, I knew she was a a Jungian. Uh, I didn't know who she was. And she proceeded to tell me that she, you know, couldn't tell me what it meant because, you know, it's something that Jungians come to with the patient. Um, But, you know, off the top of her head, you know, I'm probably this or this or this or this. And I, and I just was like, it was like someone had just punched me in the gut with a sledgehammer. Wow. It was just like, oh, wow. Okay. There's something to mm-hmm. this. And she said to me, you know, I'm based in Switzerland, but if you ever are there, I'll make time to see you. So it's kind of like, yeah, okay. Next time I'm in <laughs> Switzerland, I'll drop by. <laughs> and then I realized over the course of the next two days that this woman was a, a deity in this world. She was wow. Jung's protege. Um, her name was Marie-Louise von France. And, um, and she's, you know, I saw people who were, uh, you know, rock stars in that world trying to get time with her and she would not make it. So I realized that this was a remarkable opportunity. And so every February for a lot of years, I would get on a plane and I would go to Kusnacht, Switzerland in therapy with her. And, um, and it was just incredible. <laughs> it was just incredible. Mm, that's a, and so that's a therapy bill. 
Two weeks in Switzerland. Um, yeah. uh, it wasn't so bad, actually. I, I don't just getting over there, right? Yeah, the the Switzerland part was not not the cheapest, but um, but Much yeah. So so yeah, I was so I was all in at that point, and I think that I have, um, as I mentioned, always written, and I think I've uh, sort of always tried to be cognizant of what you know very little I know about the psyche and the way it works and and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and um and it's been it's it's been yeah it's a it's a driving force in my life every day so the the passion for learning coming to present is is woodworking right so that is your latest challenge of learning and how is that going you know, I just really love it. And I was trying to explain to my husband why I love it. And I realized that I don't know other than um, I have always liked, I've always liked being out of my comfort zone. Not that I enjoy it, but I think good things come from it. And yeah. so I I sort of am gravitating towards things that make me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, And I also really like things that make it impossible to think about other things at the same time. So sailboat racing is one of them. You need to be fully present Present. or bad things will happen. Um, (laughs) If I'm, you know, working on a table saw or chop saw, I can't let my mind drift. I need to be right there doing that. And so I think that there's an element um, of that that kind of runs through it because I really, it's almost like a meditation to just sort of pull myself out of my head, which is, I think, a good thing to do from time to time. but I also just really like the challenge of of taking something and, you know, whether it's a piece of fabric or whether it's a piece of lumber or whether it's a blank piece of paper or whatever, and making something out of it. And, and I think that that's kind of magical. And the idea mm-hmm. of being able to make something that um, is specifically for you um, is I think really cool. So so I try to, you know, again, there's all sorts of skills that I can learn. So there's always something to learn. There's always a, a new challenge. But but I think I think I really like the fact that um, it just takes me out of my brain. I'm just curious, Teresa, if you have any idea what might be the next thing, the next the next challenge. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Um, I have to say it's it's never they're never intentional. Mm. Um it it sort of serendipitous. You know, totally serendipitous. Yeah. Totally oh, okay. something that, you know, and honestly if, you know, something had come to me at another point in my life would I have reacted the same way to it? Um I don't really know. I just sort of feel like life is um, it's a little bit, um, like this path that you're on and you, you try to collect as many sort of tokens or whatever you want your imagery to be, um, before you get to the end. And so for me, um, 
what it is doesn't really matter. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I recently just replaced the hard drive in my iMac and, and I was shocked at how actually easy it is other than trying not to break the glass or (laughs) to me, it's just like, I just wander through the, the wilderness that is, that is life and sort of, you know, keep my eyes open and, and, um, keep my heart open and just sort of see what, what sparks. So who knows what, that's great. Who knows what comes next? I don't know. Love it. I envision just for while you're talking, uh, maybe race car driving, you know, mock. Um, you know, my brother went to Bobby Bondurant School of Race Car Driving. I've heard and, of that. Um, yeah. and he pimped out this Camaro Z28 when Ooh, he was 16. Nice. And the thing was not street legal. And, um, and, <laughs> and he taught me how to drive in this thing, which was pretty funny. But, um, uh, and he's he's racing still, and it's one of those things that the next time I I go out to California, I think I might have to jump behind You're the wheel. You're totally doing that now. Course. It's set up yeah, for totally you. Yeah, totally doing that. Wow. Well, this has been. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you have, we have a, a minute. I mean, any other thoughts? You've kind of told our listeners so much to take in, and it really has been a fascinating conversation. Any other uh, life thoughts thoughts for the audience and the Gray Matters audience you want to leave us with? Or you, you pretty no, much I just said a lot. I mean, to the Gray Matters audience, I would just say I, I, I ran the adult sailing program at, at the um, Yacht Club here, and and I developed like this woman's program and this men's program. And I was just trying to get people to come try it and be right. open to it. And the number of people um, that even even not old people who were saying, uh, you know, oh, no, I don't I don't do that. I don't do that. Hmm. And and it's and I thought it's like everybody draws this box around themselves at a certain point in their 20s or 30s. And anything that's in that box, they still deal with. And anything that's outside of that box, they don't. And I think that, um, I think that's how you get old. (laughs) Yeah, get out of the box, yeah. Just get out of the box, just be open. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gray Matters Podcast. Please rate and review it and be sure to tell your friends too. For more information about this podcast, go to thegraymatters.org and please subscribe to The Gray Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, Teresa Laughlin, my co-host, Tony Hoyland, and a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Todd Harrington. Until next time.